Uh, do me a favor, turn in your Bible to the book of 1 Kings chapter 22. Uh, if you don't have your Bible with you, that's totally cool. It'll be on the screen behind me. And if you've been with us for any length of time, here's a ministry you know that we've spent a long, long time working through 1 Kings, and we're getting close to being done with it. We've got really two weeks left in this text, and then we're going to take a couple weeks off, and we'll be jumping around some different topics, and then we're moving into the book of John in December, which will probably take us like a decade. Um, but for now, we're in 1 Kings. And what I hope ha- has become apparent as we've kind of walked through 1 Kings, especially these last few weeks, uh, is that we've seen the life of this king in Israel's national history named Ahab. And he's again and again referred to as the most wicked king that Israel's ever had. He does more than anybody else to provoke the Lord. He does more than anybody else to rebel against God. Uh, And yet again and again, what you see in Ahab's life is in spite of how terrible he is, God keeps showing him mercy. Uh, God keeps giving him opportunities to repent. God keeps um, stepping back from judgment in the hopes that Ahab is gonna turn things around. And you know, one of the things that we we hear so often, and maybe even some of us have felt this way before, is that it's hard to wrap your mind around how loving God seems in the New Testament, like how kind Jesus is, and how angry it seems like God is in the Old Testament. Uh, I know I've certainly wrestled with that before. You come to passages in especially like the book of Joshua uh, or other portions of the Old Testament, and you go, how does this square with how nice Jesus seems and how angry God seems here in this Old Testament passage? But one of the things that I hope you're seeing as we walk through 1 Kings is that in Ahab's life, as terrible as he is, what you don't see is God dropping the hammer of judgment. What you do see is the same grace that you see in Jesus, uh, that God is waiting and waiting and calling him to repentance and giving him time to turn things around and sending people to call him uh, to turn away from his sin to avoid judgment. So you see this mercy of God again and again in this man's life. Last week, or rather the last time we were in this text in particular, uh, God had been merciful yet again. The nation of Israel was being invaded by the Syrians, and God had sent a prophet to Ahab and said, listen, I'm going to give you victory in this battle so that you know that I'm the Lord. And then the Syrians, after losing one battle, decided to try again, Uh, and God sends the same prophet back, and he says, Just so you know, you're going to win this one too, so that you know that I'm the Lord. It's this constant holding out of the opportunity to repent, uh, the chance to turn things around. But what we missed, or what we didn't really cover, at the end of chapter 20, which is where we were last time, is that after this second victory, after Israel wins another battle by God's grace, uh, the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, comes to Ahab, the king of Israel, and he says, if you don't kill me, I'll give you this city that I invaded back. Apparently, there's a city on the border of Israel named Ramoth-Gilead that Syria has been occupying, and he says, if you spare my life, I'll I'll give you back what's yours. And so Ahab says, sure, that sounds like a good idea. Absolutely. Uh, And he actually refers to him as his brother. He says, you're my brother now because you offered to do this nice thing for me, and in turn, I won't kill you. And then we come to chapter 22, our text for the evening. And it picks up three years after where we left off two weeks ago. We're told in chapter 22, verse 1, that for three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us? And we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. And then he said to Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead? Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. 
So what you see is that we're picking up after this three-year time jump, and the promise that Ben-Hadad made to the king of Israel is, if you spare my life, I'll give you this city back. But three years later, nothing has changed. He's still in the city. He hasn't made good on his promise. And Ahab is a little bit upset about this. Uh, he's upset enough that he goes to the northern king of Israel and says, hey, do you want to join forces and take the city back? And what we know kind of archaeologically is that Ramoth Gilead is a pretty good strategic location. Like if, if you have uh, suitable defenses there, it's a good way of making sure you don't get invaded. And so having Syria in this city is not just sort of this disrespectful thing, but it's also something that's dangerous. And so the king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, says, yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely on board with helping you out. My people are your people. My horses are your horses. But here's what's so fascinating. Ahab seems really upset about the fact that the king of Syria hasn't actually made good on his promise. Like I can imagine him just like pouting in his palace about this situation. Uh, maybe like, maybe he like becomes friends with Ben-Hadad on Facebook when he spares his life and then he like silences his story and then he blocks him and he deletes him and reports his profile and he's, he's just like getting more and more angry about the fact that he's shown this man mercy. Like I could have killed you. I had the right to kill you. I won in battle and this is how you repay me. But here's what's so ironic about Ahab's anger here is he essentially says, I showed you mercy and you've spit in my face. I, I spared your life, and you continue to disrespect me. The irony is that everything that Ahab is upset about, as it happens to him, is exactly what he's done to God for the entirety of his reign. That again and again and again, God has shown him mercy, and he's continued to rebel. Over and over and over again, where he deserved judgment, God shows him kindness, and he just keeps going. But the minute that it happens to him, he's ready to start a war over it. And this underscores something that I think is, is really significant. It's true in the lives of almost everybody that I've ever known. Our sin never seems as serious when it's committed by us as opposed to when it happens to us. So like, to me, like the the pinnacle example of this was a couple months ago, I was in the office and Francis stopped by the office and said, hey Travis, have you gotten in touch with such and such because there was something that we were trying to plan and coordinate. And I was like, yeah, uh, I sent them like two or three texts and they haven't responded to anything. And the way I said that, it was kind of like obvious that I was angry about it. It was like, I've sent them two or three texts and they haven't said anything. <laughs> and Francis, in this really brilliant way, just goes, hmm, now you know how that feels then, don't you? <laughs> because, I'm really bad at responding to text messages. And it's not a problem at all in my mind when I do it, but when somebody else does it to me, I become outraged. But this is the reality of our sin, is that until our life becomes a parable in this way, we don't actually see how serious it is. Ahab has spit in the face of the mercy of God for decades, but the minute he shows mercy to somebody and it's not reciprocated with thankfulness, he starts a war over it. The, the grace of God in some ways is that he allows us through the parable of life to see the reality of our own sinfulness. And that's sometimes really painful. But, but it's still an act of mercy to, to finally grasp the weight of how you have made other people feel. And yet at the same time, it's not always that our life becomes a parable in a negative sense. Uh, like so often God uses these situations in our life so that our lives become parables to understand his grace better. Maybe you've been in conflict with somebody. 
and that person has forgiven you and it lets you know, listen, we're, we're good. Like I, I, un, I re-unmuted your Facebook story. Like I'm, I'm paying attention to what you're saying again. And that reconciliation gives you this, this, however slight, this foretaste of what it means to be reconciled to God. To understand what it means to be at odds with somebody and then to see that tension resolved. Uh, or maybe somebody's wronged you in, in a very legitimate and profound way. And you have had to, at great cost to yourself, offer forgiveness. In spite of the way that you've wronged me, I forgive you. In some small way, you begin to grasp the costliness of Christ's forgiveness for you on the cross. As your life becomes a parable to illustrate the reality of what you're actually living in spiritually. But for Ahab, his life becomes a negative parable. He shows grace to Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad is not interested in his grace And so he goes to this man, Jehoshaphat, the king of the northern portion of Israel, the king of Judah, and he says, they're still in our city. Let's go take it back. Uh, What we know from the rest of Scripture, and especially 2 Chronicles, is that Jehoshaphat, other than just having a really cool name, is also a pretty good king in the history of Israel. Like he's, he does his best to bring Israel back from the brink of idolatry. And so Jehoshaphat agrees, but then he says this in verse 5. He says to the king of Israel, inquire first the word of the Lord. Verse 6 says that the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, shall I go to battle against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? And they said, go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. So Jehoshaphat, being a particularly devout individual, says, I'm on board but let's make sure God is also cool with this. He probably should have said the, let's make sure God is cool with this before he got on board with the invading of this occupied city. Uh, But he says, do you have any prophets around here? Do you have anybody who claims to speak for God? Let's see what God thinks about these plans that we're laying. And Ahab says, yeah, I've actually got 400 people who speak for God, which is a very large amount of prophets to have, seeing as he like killed all of them off maybe a decade ago. But that number, 400, should actually give you kind of a subtle clue as to what's going on here. Uh, Because only two or three chapters earlier, maybe five or six years prior, uh, Ahab has about 400 prophets of Baal, this false god that he's been worshiping. And so the fact that the number is so similar is kind of the way of the author letting you know, hey, these prophets that speak for God might have more in common with the false prophets than they do with Elijah. Like, he may claim that he's got prophets who speak for God, but his track record of amassing 400 prophets who have anything profitable to say is pretty bad. And so he gathers these people together, and he says, should we, uh, should we go and invade this city? And they all say, yeah, absolutely, good idea, go for it. But then Jehoshaphat actually says this in verse 7, is there not another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? It's like he, he listens to all 400 of these people and he's still not convinced, which is kind of strange when you think about it. When you have 400 people telling you the exact same thing, you kind of think that truth would go with the majority. They're, they're, these 400 people can't have all missed something. But there's actually some pretty good reasons why he's skeptical. There, there, there's a couple reasons why he's not willing to just go with the will of the masses. And it gets to the heart of the question in this text. Because this is, this is the question that's being asked by the king of Judah. What does it look like when God speaks? Like, what does it really look like when God has something to say to us? Does it look like what he's just seen, these 400 men telling the king to go for it, or does it look like something different? 
There's two reasons why I think he's skeptical. One of them is kind of hard to see in the English translation. Because in the English, when he asks for sort of advice from these prophets, uh, what they say to him is this. They say, go up for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And so it sounds like it's a, it's a pretty, pretty open and shut case. If you go, you'll achieve victory. But the Hebrew is way more vague. Uh, the fa- in fact, the Hebrew is like almost nonsensical, which is probably why your Bible tries to smooth it over and make it make a little bit more sense in the English. The Hebrew is the Lord will give into the hands of the king. So here, here's the problem with that. The Lord will give what? Into the hands of which king? Like, what's actually going to happen? That, that's, that's like you going and stopping by like a, a psychic's office and asking who's going to win the World Series, which is a sporting event happening right now. And, and them saying, the team will win the sport. Like, it means nothing, functionally. What team is going to win what sport, when? It, it's... It's a statement that is essentially useless but can be true in like 50,000 different circumstances. And it's the same way with what they actually say to the king of Israel. They basically say, a king is going to gain control of something. That could mean that the Syrians are going to win. And they would say, see, told you, the king's going to gain control of something. That could mean that Ahab's going to win. See, told you, king's going to gain control of something. It is the statement that has no weight, it has no value. It's empty. And it's really different from every, every other time God's spoken in 1 Kings. Like when he speaks through Elijah, Elijah says, for the next few years it will not rain unless I say it's going to rain. Like there's only one way to interpret that. If it rains and Elijah didn't say anything, he's wrong. Uh, if it doesn't rain until Elijah says something, he's right. It's not open to, to 50 different ways of being extrapolated. Or again, when this anonymous prophet comes to Ahab and says, you see all these, these Syrians? You're going to win this battle over them so that you know that the Lord is God. It's cut and dry. And so Jehoshaphat is skeptical. I, I'm not sure if you've ever read like the horoscope section in the newspaper. I don't even know if there's still a horoscope section in the newspaper. I'm not going to judge you if you read it. I don't think you're like some sort of a pagan or anything. Um, but what's really convenient about that particular section of um, the Tampa Bay Times or whatever you read uh, is that it's vague enough that every prediction can be true of every person who reads it. Like, you can read every single sign and go, that's me. That's totally me. And then you can read, like, what's supposed to happen to you for the month or what should have happened to you last month, and you're like, that totally happened to me. All of these things happened to me. This must have been written for me. But this is, this is the difference between what it looks like when God really speaks and what it looks like when people claim to speak for God. Like, when God speaks, there's weight behind it. There's there's context to it, and there's content. Um, a, a couple months ago, I was at my parents' house watching TV because they have cable, and I needed to catch up on This Is Us. And, <laughs> and uh, as I was flipping through the channels, there was, uh, it was like the Christian Television Network, and there was one of these preachers who's pretty well-known. He's pretty widely criticized. And I kind of stopped on the channel, and I was like, oh, this is that guy. And then I realized, you know what? I've never actually heard this guy 
Like, I've never heard anything he said. I've just heard a bunch of people who I tend to respect say bad things about him. I should probably listen to one of his sermons. And so I sat on this channel for probably 30 minutes just watching this sermon, and I watched this crowd of people go through, like, the full gamut of human emotions. Like, people crying, people cheering, and standing up and celebrating. And there was, like, multiple times where, like, I started to get, like, a little misty-eyed. And I was like, that's so beautiful. And then, um, I think it was, like, my mom or my dad or my brother, I guess it was the only three people in my family, uh, one of my family members walks in and goes, oh, you're, you're watching this guy? And I said, yeah. And they said, what's he talking about? And I said, I have no idea. Like, I, like I, actually, I actually have no idea what he's just said for the last 30 minutes. But this is the difference between what it looks like when God actually speaks and when people claim to speak for God. There is gravity and there's weight and there's content when God speaks. And it's, it's so important for you and I, um, especially in the age of like the internet where anybody can publish a book or write a blog, to actually have some discernment uh, and actually say, what is this person really saying? Or is this just a bunch of spiritual Christian words that are strung together in a way that makes me feel something? And Jehoshaphat has that discernment. He says, you just claim to speak for God, but what you actually said doesn't really make any sense. Is there anybody else who might have something to say? But he's probably got one other reason why he is concerned. Um, it's, a little, it's a little convenient when you think about it that uh, the king of Israel decides to go to battle and then decides to ask his 400 prophets who all happen to agree with the decision that he made before asking God anything about it. Like there's, just a, uh, there's just something about that that sounds a little too convenient. And I think what Jehoshaphat recognizes is that it's just not really the way that God normally talks to just kind of give you the green light on any possible decision that you come up with, whether you consult him or not. Uh, one, of, one of the great theologians in the last hundred years was a man named Karl Barth. Uh, and, and I want to be really clear, Karl Barth has a lot wrong with him, both, both personally and theologically. Uh, but one of the things that he said as he was talking about theology, and he's sort of writing about the job of somebody being a theologian, as he said, that the, the theologian's job is to look at what the church is and what the church says and then to look at what God has said in Scripture, and then to test the church's existence and witness against what God himself has said. That, that, that's the job, is to take the fire of Scripture and apply it to the structure of the church and let Scripture sift the problems through with the church. And he, he said, the best sign that somebody is not actually being a good theologian is if they look at the church and then they look at Scripture and then they come back to the church and they say, everything's fine, keep doing what you're doing. That's a pretty good sign that you've missed something. Now, that's not to say that the only job of a theologian is just to complain. Everything is wrong. We have to burn the house down and start over. Like, that's, that's not the intention either. But if you can look at Scripture and come back and say, God says everything's fine, carry on. It's a pretty good sign you haven't actually encountered the living God. And this is what I think Bart's getting at, and I think this is probably what Jehoshaphat recognizes, is that when God speaks, there's absolutely comfort and there's encouragement, but there's also confrontation and conviction. Like when God really speaks, it both comforts us and it strengthens us, but it also challenges us to be different than what we are. It could be no other way if we are as flawed as Scripture says we are and God is as holy as Scripture says that we are. And so, he asks Ahab this question, is there anybody else 
Is there anybody else who speaks for the Lord? Because I don't really know about the 400 people that you brought here. And Ahab gives kind of a surprising response. He says this, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah the son of Imlah, but I hate him because he never prophesies good concerning me, but only evil. Which again gets back to this image of Ahab just being like, a child in terms of his emotional stability. Yeah, there's one other person, but he never tells me what I want to hear, so why would we listen to him? This person, these 400 people just gave us the go-ahead. Why would we go listen to the one person who doesn't say what we want to hear? And then you, you kind of get to this reality. It's easy for us, especially because of how wicked Ahab is and the way that he's put to death the prophets of God, the way that he's set up idols, the way that he's persecuted Elijah. It's easy for us to look at him and just kind of laugh, and I think we should laugh in some ways at how ridiculous this is. But this impulse to fill our lives with people who just confirm what we already believe, that's just as strong in you and I as it is in Ahab. Like the temptation to surround yourself with people that will just tell you what you wanna hear, that's not just Ahab's temptation, that's human nature. And that's true, uh, not just in terms of like life decisions, that's true theologically. Like, maybe this is a little controversial, but if all your favorite pastors, authors, and theologians just say the things that you already believed before you heard them, that might kind of be a bad sign. Like, if nobody has the right to tell you that you're wrong because you know better than everybody else, and everybody else seems to always agree with you, you might have filled your prophetic office with 400 people just telling you what you want to hear. It's so profoundly dangerous. Like it makes life easier until life actually happens. And then things come apart at the seams because everybody told you what you wanted to hear, not what you needed to hear. Listen, there is no shortage of pastors, authors, theologians, gurus, advice givers in the world who can support any possible position on any possible issue that you might take. Like if you decide to, to believe uh, that Jesus was not in fact God, um, but was a reincarnation of the storm God Baal, I'm sure you can find a Bible scholar somewhere who will agree with you on that. But that's what's so dangerous, I think, about not letting our beliefs come from God's clear speech in Scripture, but coming to Scripture with what we think God should say. You can always find somebody to confirm what you already believe, but the whole point of the Christian life is to let God himself speak to you. I'm not so ignorant as to, to, to fail to recognize that um, there's probably some people in this room who maybe you've been coming for days, weeks, months, years, and you're not a Christian, uh, and perfectly okay with saying, hey, I, I don't know what I believe, but I'm here because I have questions and I wanna think through these things. And I, first of all, love the fact that you're here and I hope that this is a community where you can ask those questions and wrestle with those issues, and we're not gonna give you pat, cheesy answers, but we're gonna wrestle through those things with you. I'm also not so ignorant as to think that some of the things that people wrestle through when they try to decide what to make of Jesus are wrestling through the stupidity of things that people have said when they claim to speak for God. Like, like I'm, I'm sure that there are some of you in here who have heard outrageous things claimed in the name of God by people who bear the name of Christ. And I have no interest in defending the ignorance and bigotry of 
Christians saying stupid things and thinking they speak for God. But I do want to call your attention here in terms of, of what Scripture says. Is it, it creates this category for us where it says it is totally possible for somebody to say, this is what God says, and to actually get it wrong. And I think that in some ways that's helpful. Just because somebody has the title of pastor in front of them doesn't mean they're always right. And sometimes we have frustrations with God about things that God's never actually said. The, the real question here at the heart of all of this is what does it look like when God speaks? What does it really look like when God says something? Does it look like the 400 prophets that Ahab musters or does it look like the one prophet that we'll see next week? And I think you, you see a couple things in this passage. One, it looks like when God speaks, there's weight. There's content to it. Two, when God speaks, there's conviction um, and there's comfort. But the ultimate answer to that question that we would ask, what does it look like when God speaks? It comes to us in the text that Lydia read for us during worship, the opening chapter of Hebrews. And many times and in many ways, God has spoken by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. What does it look like when God speaks? The answer is it looks like Jesus. That is the fullest revelation of what God has to say in the words of the author of Hebrews, he is the image of the invisible God, the very representation of his nature. But what you see when God speaks in Jesus is everything that's not present in these 400 prophets' words. There's weight to what Jesus says. Like I'm sitting in a gospels class right now in seminary and my brain is melting from the content of it. Jesus is not putting out pithy sayings that don't really have any meaning. He's not going around saying things like cleanliness is next to godliness. Jesus is communicating in the gospels things of profound weight. The greatest act of comfort on the part of God is the incarnation of God the Son. The greatest sign that God loves you is that he sent Christ. But at the same time, the greatest sign that God disagrees with you is that he sent Christ. That in Christ, in the word being made flesh, God both says you are more sinful than you ever could have thought to the point that this is necessary. But at the same time, in Christ, he says you are more loved than you ever would have dared imagine. And that's what it looks like when God speaks. There's content, there's conviction, and there's comfort. And that's what's lacking in these 400 prophets. St. Augustine uh, once famously said uh, that God both speaks to us through the scriptures and in his word, and then he speaks to us visually through the Lord's Supper and bread and wine, that it is the word of the gospel made visible. And so this is something that we do as a ministry every week is that we move into this time of communion. After God has spoken through his word, we see the word of God visually over bread and wine. So uh, I'm gonna invite the people who are kind of holding the elements to come on up, uh, and if you're a Christian, and if you're walking with the Lord, we invite you to take communion with us uh, to see the gospel um, in these tangible elements. The next few moments are yours. Uh, feel free to come up whenever it is that you feel ready. I'm gonna pray for us, and then we'll move into that time of communion. Heavenly Father, you are good and kind. Uh, Lord, in your kindness, uh, sometimes you tell us not what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. Lord, you convict us. But Lord, you never strike down without the intention of building us up and binding us up. So God, I pray uh, that you've spoken to us tonight by the words you've inspired by your spirit. 
Lord, I pray that you would uh, work in our hearts now as we come to the table, that you would speak to us in these moments uh, with gravity, with conviction, with compassion. We ask all these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.